welcome to the Joint Trauma System Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor, with the Joint Trauma System. On this episode, we are discussing the amputation CPG with Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Kyle Potter. Lieutenant Colonel Potter is currently serving as Chief of Orthopedics at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and has been the Chief Orthopedic Surgeon for the Amputee Care Program for the last 10 years. Oh, good morning. It's good to be here. So what are some of the reasons that a casualty may require amputation? Well, the first one is, is fairly obvious. If, if they sustain a traumatic amputation due to a devastating um, blast or a sharp injury uh, in the field or in a, you know, a motor vehicle collision. So uh, if a patient comes in with a limb already amputated, um, there are relatively few in- indications for attempting to replant that. Um, or reattach an arm or a foot, and, th- and those would be simply a, a, a sharp, clean transection um, in a medically stable patient where you have the appropriate surgical resources to attempt uh, a reimplantation. Um, so the number one reason why a patient may require tr- management of a traumatic or combat-related amputation is that they sustain one already. Um, the other big indication is obviously if they sustain a devastating limb injury um, such that the limb is not medically salvageable, or um, if it is potentially salvageable, um, that the end functional result would ultimately um, be inferior to that of an amputation. And, uh, and that's predicated on a number of factors in terms of nerve status, vascular status, viability of the remaining tissue, uh, soft tissue coverage, degree of contamination, and then, of course, the whole patient picture um, the threshold for proceeding with amputation versus attempting limb salvage um, is a lot lower in a patient who is in extremis, who is severely, you know, has an hemorrhagic shock or has severe systemic polytrauma, um, in which case we certainly uh, err towards saving life over trying to salvage a mangled limb. What are the different classifications of amputations that are dealt with in the battlefield? Um, well, you have the traumatic amputation or essentially immediate at the point of injury or, or near complete traumatic amputation um, would be the first category. And, and the latter aspect of that is just when a limb is clearly amputated, but is you know, held on by a few bits of tissue or maybe a, a strand of skin. Um, the second category is, is one where the patient presents and the extremity, although still attached, um, is clearly not viable or salvageable. Um, and uh, an amputation is performed during that index procedure um, when the patient is uh, <clears throat> being init- undergoing their initial irrigation debridement, uh, trauma-related resuscitation and, and stabilization. Um, <clears throat> moving on from there, an early secondary amputation would be uh, early in the patient's treatment's course. Um, typically, this decision is made within the first few days to weeks where a limb that may have been salvageable on uh, presentation um, hasn't done well due to uh, further tissue necrosis, failure of a vascular reconstruction, um, and so forth, such that a limb that, that we thought up front might have been salvageable um, ultimately uh, proves not to be. Um, and it also included in that would be patients who, once they're awake and you're able to have a conversation with them um, and, or, and or their family members in a, you know, a coherent fashion in a stable environment, elect to proceed with early amputation based upon uh, the poor prospects um, for either a successful limb salvage or a successful functional result from limb salvage. And then the last category would be um, late secondary amputation, which is um, most commonly patients actually coming back in and essentially saying, thanks for saving my hand or my foot or my leg, doc, 
um, but it hurts all the time or I'm not as functional as I want, I want to be, I would like an amputation at this point. Um, another group of patients that fall into that late secondary category are those that are undergoing limb salvage but have developed uh, a, a complication, um, most commonly a recurrent deep infection or a failure of soft tissue coverage, like a free tissue transfer flap, um, such that uh, limb salvage is, is no longer feasible or, or less feasible um, and appealing to uh, both the patient and provider. And so sometimes in the setting of those downstream uh, major complications, late secondary amputation becomes necessary or requested by the patient. Would you have some rough percentages of how many amputations fall into each one of these categories? I'm, I'm not really sure between, frankly, between traumatic and primary amputation because that's not often well documented. Um, you know, if a patient comes in with a, a, a near complete uh, amputation, um, you know, it's, it's a gray area whether or not they would be considered a traumatic amputation or a primary amputation. Um, but that's certainly the majority of patients that we treat um, have the amputation to either sustained due to the trauma or performed very early in their course. And then you have probably another 20% each that fall into the uh, early secondary or late secondary categories, with the majority of the latter, again, being patients that um, come back and, and actually request the amputation themselves. So as you had touched on when we first got started, there's some different criteria that you look at when deciding whether or not there's a need for amputation. Can you go into a little bit of depth on what that criteria is and how you decide whether or not amputation is the right course of action? Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, there are a number of factors that you you consider when uh, deciding whether or not a limb uh, is salvageable or may be salvageable. Um, and the most uh, two critical factors to consider there are the uh, viability and perfusion status of those distal soft tissues and bone. Um, is there adequate blood supply there or can we reconstruct them or shunt them such that there will be adequate blood supply? And then the overall condition of the patient. Again, if someone is extremely sick and essentially trying to die right in front of you, that's not a patient that you want to endeavor on a multiple hour procedure to try to save a mangled extremity on um, because you can essentially save the leg or save the hand um, and lose the patient. Um, and that's not in anyone's best interest. Um, moving on from there, it's really a composite picture of the vascular status, the neurologic status, if you have a documented nerve transection um, of, a, of a major peripheral nerve, um, the soft tissue coverage and, and the involved bone or degree of bone loss um, that's ultimately going to determine whether or not a limb is salvageable or not. There are a number of scoring systems which is, have been developed in an attempt to guide providers with regard to um, whether or not a mangled extremity um, should undergo initial limb salvage or amputation. And unfortunately, those don't work that well in, in attempted validation studies. They tend to be, um, you know, one example is the mangled extremity severity score or MESS score um, with its pithy title. Um, those score, scoring systems tend to be pretty good at predicting which patients are, under, are going to undergo successful limb salvage. Um, so if you have a less severe injury, the score can tell you with a pretty high degree of reliability that, yes, you should salvage this limb and you're pro it's probably going to work. But when you move into that zone of more significant injuries, more substantial injuries, um, which are more severe, um, the scoring systems are not great at predicting which of those patients are going to potentially uh, remain candidates for limb salvage and which are ultimately going to go on to amputation. And that's the group that we really need help with. Um, and so as a result, the, scores, the scoring systems aren't very helpful in that regard. And of note, even within the uh, 
limitations, which I just discussed, of these scoring systems, um, none of these have been tested or validated in a combat trauma model where you have both you know, different mechanisms of injury, such as explosive blast, which are much less common in civilian trauma centers, as well as uh, you know, far forward medical uh, resources, but also limitations um, that are different than, uh, you know, say, a medical practice at a trauma center in the continental United States. As you begin to examine a casualty that may be a candidate for amputation, how do you go through that examination? Um, well, you need to be thorough and systematic about it, but it also needs to occur fairly quickly. And uh, in any, in any uh, you know, major extremity trauma or uh, combat-related polytrauma, um, you know, the trauma-related resuscitation starts before the patient even hits your trauma bay if you're at a forward surgical team or a similar outpost um, and uh, continues through their transport to the OR. But uh, getting the patients resuscitated with the, the one-to-one-to-one or whole blood resuscitation um, early on in the process if they've lost a lot of blood. And, uh, you know, tourniquets can be life-saving in this scenario, but oftentimes the patients have lost a lot, large volume of blood um, before you even get into the OR. But you want to get them into the operating room as quickly as possible and get surgical control of the hemorrhage, not just tourniquet control, um, which has hopefully already been established to prevent the patient from bleeding out and or requiring a massive transfusion. And then uh, you need to systematically... Um, begin exploring and debriding the wounds after you've achieved gross hemostasis to remove uh, contaminated and devitalized soft tissue and bone, as well as uh, you know dirt and foreign matter and debris which is in the wound, and that allows you to get really a better overall picture of the the injured extremity in terms of what's actually injured, what's still viable and remaining, and what the uh, distal extremity looks like. Um, and again, the criteria become a little bit different if you have segmental injuries, which we frequently see, you know, an open tibia fracture that maybe requires flap coverage or even a vascular reconstruction may be salvageable in and of itself. But if you have that injury just proximal to a foot, which is also mangled with multiple open fractures and soft tissue loss, that patient's probably going to be served better with a transtibial amputation. And so you take those same factors that I mentioned before with regarding with regard to uh, whether or not an extremity requires amputation and apply those in the operating room setting and ideally make the decision fairly quickly. Most of our surgical teams have at least one other surgeon, either a general surgeon or another orthopedic surgeon who would be operating with you. And that can aid in the decision-making process. Um, You don't have to feel like you're on an island making a decision that's gonna affect this patient for the rest of their life, um, at least the rest of their medical treatment. And so, um, you know, two heads are better than one there. And uh, you can usually jointly make a, a, a good decision. Um, in a patient who's medically stable and doing fine, and you have an extremity that's borderline, but you think may have a salvageable you know, hand or foot or leg, um, it's very reasonable to err on the side of limb salvage because nobody's going to be able to put that amputated extremity back on at the next level of care and then uh, you know, essentially punt that decision downstream. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, but you just got to make sure the patient's stable enough to uh, attempt that revascularization or whatever whatever is necessary for the provisional stabilization and salvage of the extremity. When a casualty comes in that needs an amputation but also has some other injuries, how do you decide what the order of care should be for that patient? Yeah, there's certainly some competing priorities sometimes. Ideally, um, we're operating as a team um, with uh, multiple surgeons working on the patient at the same time. Um, to sort of deconflict some of these competing goals. But, uh, you know, the initial uh, trauma resuscitation and, and surgical treatment plan certainly follows ATLS guidelines in terms of, you know, airway breathing, circulation, 
And so your number one priority is control of life-threatening hemorrhage. So if the patient has, you know, a tension pneumothorax or a cardiac tamponade or severe intra-abdominal hemorrhage or an uh, open book pelvic fracture with uh, intrapelvic hemorrhage, those things can certainly take priority over the more distal extremities um, in terms of uh, trying to save the patient's life. Um, but you do may need to make sure while pursuing those other areas that you have adequate either surgical or tourniquet control of the hemorrhaging injured extremity prior to endeavoring on that. You can't have the patient bleeding out from their legs while you're trying to stop the bleeding from their pelvis. That's not going to work out well. Um, but there are other techniques in terms of uh, pelvic packing, um, aortic cross clamping, or uh, aortic balloons, the Reboa system, to try to control lower extremity or pelvic hemorrhage um, while you're resuscitating the patient, performing that initial stabilization from their pelvic, thoraco, and abdominal trauma. But once the patient's stabilized, then performing an amputation, if required, is pretty high up on that list of things that need to get accomplished? Absolutely, because, uh, you know, putting a clamp on a vessel or having a tourniquet on a leg is not something that you can leave there long-term or as a particular, particularly stable means of hemostasis. And so you need to get proximal vascular control of the major bleeding vessels or vessels that are going to bleed um, in the absence of those measures and uh, make sure those are ligated. And then um, in terms of debriding, doing your initial uh, debridement and irrigation of these uh, contaminated, devastating, traumatic wounds, um, you know, that's there aren't many wounds that are that are more severe than a, you know, traumatic or trauma-related amputation, especially in the proximal lower extremity or pelvis region. Yeah, that makes sense. When you have a casualty come in that's prepared for an amputation and they've been stabilized, how do you go about preparing the limb for amputation? Well, that part's pretty easy. Um, you know, you can have an assistant hold, uh, you know, what's remaining of the the distal extremity and uh, and balance that with the proximal extremity um, while it's prepped and draped. And you and you want to make sure that you're draping in if you're not doing anything or anticipating doing anything in the abdomen or pelvis. You want to still give yourself uh, proximal vessel access in case you need to get into the pelvis. So, you know, a trauma prep um, goes. Uh, goes high up into the abdomen and pelvis. So if you needed to get proximal vascular control or do uh, peritoneal packing for a pelvic fracture, that you have that access. And so you don't want to box yourself out of your sterile field from other areas of the patient that you may need to, to uh, access, whether it's to explore the abdomen or put in a chest tube. Um, and then you just prep them, drape them as quickly as possible and, and get after it. Um, you want the patient to be positioned ideally um, so that if possible, you don't have to reposition them during the procedure because time is of the essence, both with regard to trauma-related suscitation and with regard to that initial surgery. We want to minimize the uh, potential second hit of a prolonged uh, index procedure where the patient's going to become uh, subject to the lethal triad of hypothermia, hypocoagulability, and acidosis um, so that you don't kill the patient or they don't die. And then, uh, like I said, you get after it with... Uh, you know, surgical control of uh, major bleeding and do an aggressive debridement. Okay. What are some of the considerations when choosing where to perform an amputation? Yeah. So, you know, we, the general recommendation is to amputate at the most distal level possible to save um, both potential residual limb length and uh, functional joint levels and essentially options for your downstream surgeons when you're going to be transferring the patient eventually to a higher level of care. And so a, a simple and general rule of thumb is to always perform an open length-preserving amputation and essentially save anything that's viable, whether it's skin, subcutaneous tissue, muscle, 
or even bone because you would be surprised and you can, you can sort of burn bridges um, if you amputate more proximal than you need to. And, uh, and we're not looking in this scenario to perform what you think is going to be the f- patient's final, final amputation level or do a textbook amputation at some level. During that initial procedure, you want to get surgical hemostasis, debride all the grossly devitalized and contaminated tissue, wash it out really well, and get them packaged up um, while saving available tissue for, uh, for later closure or coverage. Because you're just not sure. You, don't, you can't know at that index procedure what tissue is going to survive um, subsequently and, and may need to be debrided later. And if you do, your sort of textbook flaps up front and then the patient has ongoing tissue necrosis um, or needs proximal revision of the amputation, you, you may have, again, burned bridges and cost that patient important functional residual limb length by sacrificing tissue. You mentioned to avoid burning bridges by performing an amputation too far proximally. Do you have any experiences that you can share regarding that? Absolutely. No, it's not not uncommon to see somebody that, you know, we see their injury films or sometimes even pictures from downrange of an amputated foot. And they'll come in with sort of open but textbook looking transtibial amputation. And then unfortunately, you know, the surgeon downstream didn't realize that there had been the small penetrating injury behind the patient's knee had compromised the blood supply to the patient's gastrocnemius muscle. And then your skin and muscle flap that you would have ideally used to close that isn't viable. And you know that um, muscle tissue from, for example, the deep posterior compartment or the anterior and lateral compartments was debrided downrange in order to create those tissue flaps. Um, and that could have been used to salvage the patient with a longer transtibial amputation. Um, likewise, we see um, you know, guillotine or open circular amputations, which almost by definition sacrifice viable soft tissue that um, could have been utilized for closure or coverage. And uh, you don't really have any choice at that point. Um, but to amputate higher unless you have uh, you know, a short segment of bone, which is still viable um, just below the knee or the elbow, in which case a free tissue transfer uh, may be indicated in order to salvage that joint level for the patient. If there are ipsilateral fractures proximal to the level of the viable tissue, how should the fracture and the amputation be treated? Yeah, so it's very tempting in this scenario to be like, oh, they have a mangled extremity and they need an amputation and they've got this fracture up here, so I'm just going to amputate through this fracture and not, and then nobody's going to have to worry about that anymore. Um, but again, you're potentially costing that patient viable residual limb length um, or potentially even a functional joint level if you were looking at a transtibial amputation and the patient had a distal femur fracture. Um, so essentially... Uh, I would encourage providers in that scenario to think of them as two entirely separate injuries um, and treat the fracture just like you would if the patient had a distal extremity. So if they need a splint, if they need an external fixator, if a fracture needs to be pinned, you can do that just like you would provisionally stabilize any other fracture and then treat the amputation as if the fracture wasn't there Um, because in the vast majority of cases, those fractures can be treated through conventional means to successful fracture healing, whether it's in the same segment as the amputation, i.e. a proximal tibia fracture for a transtibial amputation, or if it's in the proximal segment, my example of a femur fracture above a transtibial amputation, um, we can treat those fractures and despite relatively high complication rates with regard to infection, get those fractures to heal and successfully salvage that longer residual limb or that additional functional joint level for the patient. Okay. You've already mentioned skin and tissue flaps a couple of times throughout this interview. Can you address any particular challenges or abnormalities that might be encountered with skin and tissue flaps? Yeah, I mean, getting back to my initial guidance, um, 
your goal at the initial procedure is to save the patient and save as much of the extremity as possible. And that just, again, gets back to the principles of performing an open um, length preserving amputation. And that just, again, to reiterate, this is probably the most important take-home point after getting uh, control of bleeding, is to save whatever is viable. Um, because oftentimes patients can be closed and get robust, viable coverage from atypical skin flaps, sort of flaps of opportunity, we call them, um, without needing to shorten them you know, another six inches or something to get to um, a more conventional amputation flap. And so um, recognizing that and uh, doing your best to preserve viable soft tissue um, or even bone is absolutely critical to that. And then really avoiding uh, open circular and guillotine amputations. You know, there's this misperception out there that they're um, really fast, and they are fast, but you can do an open circular amputation. I'm sorry, you can do an open length preserving amputation in really minimal more time than it takes you to do a, a guillotine or an open circular amputation. And both of those latter techniques are really kind of antiquated, um, you know, dating back to the Civil War and prior to that, where you had limited uh, medical resources essentially no sterile technique and limited anesthesia. And the goal was to do the amputation as quickly as possible in a patient who is often screaming and awake. Um, we're not in that scenario anymore. And those techniques, uh, like I said, by definition, sacrifice some degree, if not a massive degree, of viable soft tissue, which could have been used for amputation coverage. So about the only times when I think um, a guillotine-type amputation might be reasonable would be a patient with, who clearly needs an amputation or has sustained a traumatic amputation near or through a joint where you know, a trans-tib amputation is not possible um, due to bone loss or loss of the knee joint itself, and you don't have enough gastrocnemius to, to potentially salvage a knee disarticulation, then taking the joint off through the knee is, is certainly reasonable in that perspective. We're doing an ankle disarticulation in a patient who does not have a viable heel pad to potentially salvage a SIME level amputation and who you know is going to need to go on to a more proximal transtubal amputation, you know, doing a, essentially a guillotine through the ankle joint or a very long transtubal amputation it becomes reasonable in that scenario. But that's really about the only times when I would consider those amputation levels. And you keep saying um, to save the patient and to you know, save as much of the tissue as possible. And I just keep having in my head a new slogan for you to save as much of the patient as possible. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's good. Save the whole patient first and then save as much of them as possible. And I'm sure they all appreciate that too, having as much of that left over as they can. Yeah, I think unfortunately a lot of them <laughs> don't know what, what, what situation they were in in order to thank you for that. But um, it certainly can lead to much better functional outcomes and quality of life and potentially even you know return to active duty or continuation on active duty. Um, so these decisions do matter. When an amputation needs to happen near a joint, should the amputation be done right at the joint, proximal, or distal to the joint? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. It really depends on the, uh, the status of the joint itself. If your whole top part of your tibia was viable and the knee joint looked pretty good, even if you had a devastating soft tissue injury, um, in that setting, if your extensor mechanism, you know, your patella, your patellar tendon, your quadriceps was intact or salvageable, it may be very reasonable to try to save some of that bone and, and essentially save that patient at a transtibial level despite the devastating soft tissue injury because we may be able to move tissue from other parts of the body to save that knee joint. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's essentially a transtibial amputation in vast, vast majority of cases is, is functionally better than 
a more proximal amputation like a knee disarticulation or a transfemoral amputation without the knee. And so that's a scenario, um, and the same is true for the more proximal uh, transradial or below elbow amputations, where if you can save the elbow joint for the patient with you know as little as five to six centimeters of bone below it, um, they can function pretty well at that level and their functional outcome and potential is gonna be greater than if you went above that. Um, so those are the scenarios where you might save the bone even though the soft tissue injuries are devastating and might suggest um, that you need a higher level of amputation. In the CPG, it states to not perform primary closure of traumatic amputations. Can you explain why that guideline is included? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we for any major uh, combat-related uh, injury, especially blasts, um, the, the order of the day is open initial wound management. Um, and uh, amputations are, again, you know, one of the more extreme examples of a combat wound. And the reasons for that are that uh, regardless of how good of a surgeon you are or how good of a team you had or how thorough you were during that initial debridement and irrigation in terms of getting out the contamination and the dirt and the bacteria and the foreign material, um, whether it's metal fragments or pieces of a grenade or whatever, and getting rid of the, the uh, non-viable soft tissues and bone. Um, soft tissue injuries evolve over a period of time and to, and often that's a prolonged period. And so you, you can't really tell during that index procedure what other muscle isn't going to make it. And despite you doing a diligent job at getting rid of that contamination for material, you can't see bacteria unless your eyes are a lot better than mine. And so the, the rates of infection, um, which can threaten further res residual limb length or even the patient's life are exceedingly high with early, especially initial closures of those wounds. And so you really need to do a thorough but hasty initial debridement and irrigation and uh, leave the wound open to allow it to drain um, and get those evil humors out of there and uh, allow this either yourself, if they're staying at your location or the downstream surgeons to get back in there within the first 24 hours, ideally after the index procedure. And then depending on the wound status and the patient status, um, typically every 48 to 72 hours thereafter, but sometimes more frequent than that, to re-explore the wound, reassess tissue viability, clean it out again, make sure there's no overt infection or new necrotic tissue, and only after the wound and the patient have both stabilized um, is it reasonable to attempt definitive amputation revision and closure. Moving on to post-operative care of amputations, how should an amputation site be dressed and protected following the procedure? If there is an involved uh, proximal joint or a fracture, um, certainly a splint or an external fixator to help stabilize the bone is a reasonable approach. Um, but the main thing to do is to, to pack the wounds with a dry or slightly moistened gauze um, to uh, absorb fluid and allow a little bit of auto-debridement when the dressings eventually are removed um, versus placing a negative pressure wound therapy device with reticulated open cell foam and the wound vac is the most common uh, brand name that's utilized um, downrange uh, to facilitate that. And so you want to uh, facilitate, um, you know, takedown of that dressing um, at the next surgical stop um, so that you're not making the job harder on uh, yourself or the next surgeon. And uh, if necessary, and the patient's gonna be in an ICU or intubated, even facilitate uh, a bedside wound check if they're on the fence uh, with regard to whether or not to take the patient back to the operating room. And so essentially you could do a dressing change or a vac change um, under sedation to allow them to re-explore the wound easily. Um, 
And so that's the, the main principles are to, to keep the wounds packed and open. Um, you need uh, some gentle compression on there to minimize the swelling and to help control ongoing ooze or hemorrhage um, from the vessels. And, uh, and you need to let the, the drainage get out of there and facilitate uh, re surgical re-exploration of the wounds. Um, so the, re the reasons for, for splinting um, are really uh, patient comfort and uh, contracture prevention. But in the timelines that we're talking about here, in terms of you know, taking them back to the OR within 24 to 48 hours, that's not absolutely necessary. And you can certainly cause problems with a, a splint that's poorly molded or too tight. And so I would really caution people not to go too far with that unless, uh, unless there's an associated fracture that you're trying to splint that you were not able to stabilize with an external fixator. You mentioned negative pressure wound therapy. Would you mind explaining a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so negative pressure wound therapy is basically uh, applying a closed suction device to the entire uh, wound bed. Um, and so that can be uh, as simple as uh, covering the wound or packing the wound with gauze and covering it with an impervious dressing um, and connecting it to suction tubing um, and sort of the poor man's wound vac. Uh, but most commonly that's with a you know, proprietary device with, that uses reticulated open cell foam um, to dress the wound, and then uh, negative pressure is applied to that to uh, essentially improve uh, circulation and encourage granulation tissue formation and neovascularization um, and get uh, the swelling, the edema, and the wound exudate out of there with negative pressure that's typically connected to suction over the open wound at uh, 125 uh, millimeters of mercury. The CPG addresses the advantages and disadvantages of negative pressure wound therapy would you mind explaining some more of those advantages and disadvantages for us? So early on in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, negative pressure wound therapy during the evacuation process was actively discouraged because we weren't sure of the reliability and airworthiness of the machines that provide suction themselves. And subsequent uh, testing uh, proved that they could you know, function during transport and on flights at altitude um, without uh, frequent problems. And so use became more frequent. Um, in addition to uh, nicely covering your open amputation wounds, VACs do do a good job of handling that fluid. So it's, uh, there's less drainage, there's less mess on the patient and providers. Um, and it allows you to very easily, with either the VAC itself or just some staples and vessel loops, maintain some elastic skin traction to prevent further soft tissue retraction in between surgeries. Um, so that's sort of the appeal of the, the negative pressure wound therapy. And it has been shown to, like I said, decrease. Uh, increased neovascularization and granulation tissue formation while decreasing bacterial counts um, as long as the VACs are changed often enough. Problems with wound VACs are in, you know, it's not a substitute for an adequate surgical debridement. It's not going to remove gross contamination for you. Um, as the granulation tissue uh, starts to form and the tissue starts sticking together, you obliterate some normal tissue planes uh, proximally um, within the amputation that maybe need to be explored or re-explored at subsequent debridements. Um, there's potential for uh, vac malfunction or clogging during transport. And uh, a vac sponge that doesn't have the negative pressure applied to it is just uh, essentially bacteria soup um, because you really need to get that, that exudate and that wound fluid and that bacteria out of there. And so if you have a vac failure, um, you're worse off than if you just packed the wound with gauze. And then lastly, um, there's potential that VACs may contribute to the high rate of heterotopic ossification um, or extra bone formation 
um, that so many of our patients uh, later develop. And so that's a, at least a theoretical concern. But uh, in an appropriate, uh, appropriately selected patient with appropriate placement of a wound back, it is certainly safe and effective in the vast majority of cases. What are the care requirements for wounds that are treated with negative pressure wound therapy? So again, the VAC placement and maintenance is not a substitute for either an adequate uh, initial debridement and irrigation um, or subsequent surgery. So whether the patient has a wound VAC on or not, the the wound should ideally be re-explored within 24 hours of the index amputation. Um, If it looks healthy at that point, then re-exploration began to progress at 48 to 72 hour windows every two to three days until the limb is eventually closed. Um, if the wound continues to have further necrotic tissue or evidence of infection, then you know continuing with taking them back to surgery every 24 hours or essentially every day um, is necessary. And so you can't put a wound vac on and think it's going to do your job for you. And that just leaving the vac in place or even doing a vac change, whether in the OR or at the bedside, um, is a subst- substitute for an adequate initial or serial uh, surgical wound debridement. And then the vacs need to be checked Um during transport or while the patient's sitting on the ward, wherever they are, to make sure that they're functioning appropriately, um, that they're maintaining suction, that your wound-backed canister isn't filling up with fluid, which is going to make the vac malfunction and stop working, um, that they're plugged in or they have adequate battery power, um, and, and that they're, like I said, sucking and function, functioning and they're not clotted off um, within the tubing. So you just got to make sure, monitor the vac, um, serially to make sure it doesn't malfunction. Otherwise it needs to be changed, um, or the patient needs to go back to the operating room. As we're getting ready to wrap up here, do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Save the patient before the extremity and then save as much of the extremity as possible. Um, and open length preserving amputations are the order of the day after you've, um, achieved a good surgical hemostasis and debrided all non-viable tissue and gross, grossly contaminated tissue, um, you know, followed by thorough irrigation. Whether you're using pulse lavage, gravity flow irrigation, or bulb syringe, you want high, volu- high volume um, irrigation with just normal saline um, to try to wash those microscopic contaminants out of there. And uh, try to think of what might be useful for the next surgeon or yourself during the next procedure um, in terms of the patient's definitive closure or coverage, and really try to preserve as many options as possible with regard to joint levels, residual limb length, and soft tissue coverage options. Um, There's no indication to try to perform a textbook or book chapter described amputation during the index procedure or early subsequent procedures. We just need those options in case, uh, you know, muscle dies or skin flaps die. And and, uh, atypical flaps can certainly preserve residual limb length and functional joint levels that have tremendous uh, quality of life and functional implications for our patients. One final closing comment would be, you know, with regard to decisions whether to perform amputation or limb salvage, try to do the right thing. Nobody has a crystal ball, um, but if the patient is stable enough to attempt limb salvage and you think the extremity is viable, um, no one's going to fault you for attempting to salvage it up front, whether or not the limb is successful or limb salvage is successful down the road. Um, by the same token, saving a clearly uh, mangled and non-viable extremity particularly in a sick patient, is not in anybody's best interest. And uh, just try to do the right thing. Well, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day to share your expertise with all of us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This concludes this episode of the Clinical Practice Guideline podcast. Stay up to date with CPG developments by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. 
You can always find the latest tactical and surgical combat casualty care information, knowledge tools, and current guidelines at www.deployedmedicine.com. You can also download the Deployed Medicine mobile app to your phone or tablet. With the app, you can access the latest combat casualty care content, JTS clinical practice guidelines, and instructional videos. Our target is to eliminate preventable combat death by providing the right training and right tools to be applied by the right people at the right time. Until next time, stay safe and continue saving lives on the battlefield.